Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the truth that it tells us about our history, our origins, where we came from, where we're going, and how we got into the mess we're in. Um, I pray for Ben, Lord. I thank you for the preparation he's put in. I pray that you would still his heart, invade him with your spirit, and speak through him the words that we need to hear. Holy Spirit, I ask you to open our hearts and minds so that we hear the words that are coming from you, from God, our Father, Jesus, our King and friend. Don't let Ben say anything that won't be from you. Just be with him and guide his mouth. Amen. Oh, yeah. Sunday school. That was a time of life. And Craig's open if you want to use it, but no one's running. Hey, Ron. Hey. That was such an enthusiastic hello. Can I just sit that on yours, Tim? That'd be cool. Great. So how are we, how are we all doing? Good? Little in number? You all look very eager. You're all sitting up there, taking Nadine's lead. Good. I'm just going to pray myself, just steady my heart, Lord. Just help me this morning, Father, just to speak uh, words of truth from you. Um, this is hard for me, Lord, just with uh, speaking about your enemy and um, our enemy, by extension. And uh, Lord, protect me, protect us from distractions and wayward thoughts and words and help us to understand clearly what you have to say to us um, and the lessons that we can learn. Um, um, out of understanding who Satan is. Amen. So, it's good to be here. Um, my kids have a little bit of a fascination at the moment with a board game. We're all, not, we're all familiar with the Snakes and Ladders board game. Steve's not. Pity. Shame on you. Um, we all know Snakes and Ladders. Like We all grew up as it as a kid. You know, it's that game where there's all those... Squares, I think there's 100 squares and you go all the way from 1 to 100. You land at the base of a ladder and you get to travel all the way up and you skip a whole heap of numbers on your way. And then you go, if you land on the mouth of a snake, you go all the way down the snake and you land on its tail. Now, whether I'm just hyper aware of our sermon today, but I sort of saw, I saw this game, I'm like, where is the origins? Where does this game come from? That the idea that snakes pull people down and that ladders pull... Well, I understand the ladders going up reference, like. But I was wondering if this is based, in, I haven't researched this at all, this is just my thoughts, but I wonder if it's based in any sort of biblical truth. You know, like snakes pulling people down and whether it's like a Jacob's ladder or something, taking people up. But you don't go down the ladders, though, so I'm not sure what those angels were doing. But um, maybe I'm just hyper aware, but yeah, this is, this is what we're doing today. This is our mega series. We're cracking along in the mega series, the Meeting God Almighty series, and today we're going to be looking at Satan, the serpent. He's our enemy, and so we'll see how we go with this. Um, open your Bibles up to uh, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be mainly staying in there. We're going to sort of work through that passage mostly today, uh, at least the first part of it. Uh, I'm going to make a few comments as we read through it, um, and we're going to take a bit of a hiatus out of that passage, and we're going to look at another couple of little ones, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to sit in this one 
main verse, and it was the verse I alluded to in the prayer and share time. And this little verse is kind of like a little, little seed that the rest of kind of the Bible narrative springs from and grows up out of. And as this little seed grows into a big tree, um, this tr- through this tree we can see like God's miraculous uh, plan and his working and his amazing mastery in his mind and his plan for creation. So let's jump into uh, Genesis chapter 3 and let's go for a bit of a read. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay, so from that we understand that God has made this serpent creature. One of the beasts of the field, God has made it. It is a create creature, part of his creation. And God had made it cunning. So it's smart, it's slick, it's sharp, it's acute, you know, whatever the, the words are for cunning. You know, um, that's how we understand this creature was. He said to the woman, whoa, wait, what? This snake talks. What, what's going on here? Now, this is something, this is very peculiar, very peculiar, one of only a couple, you know, these talking animals that we hear about in the Bible. Because this is so peculiar, this is where we, as the reader, we come across this part and we're like, eh, that's strange. This is where we've got to sit up and we've got to pay attention because something's going on here. Something is different about this snake, about this serpent. It doesn't seem that it surprised Eve, but who knows what kind of weird, wonderful, uh, wacky things she was exposed to in a precursed world. So, but for us, this is peculiar, so we pay attention. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So first line out of the gates, and this talking snake is already representing God wrong. He's already questioning what God is saying, and he's um, sort of making out, sort of alluding to the fact that, um, you know, what have you got to eat, Eve? You know, can't you eat of any of these trees here? Didn't he give you anything to eat? He's already putting Eve, you know, offside with God. So why would this snake get things so wrong? And why would it lie? Why would it portray God in a bad light? Because this is Satan in the serpent. So we'll continue on verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees of, in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you eat it, sorry, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the thing that sort of sticks out to me here is what, like define die. Like what did Eve know of death at that point in time? What did she even know about death? What did she even know about evil? So it seems to be that Eve has not really, maybe, you know, God gave this original commandment to Adam, maybe Adam hasn't passed it on to Eve, whatever the circumstance around that is, doesn't seem to be that Eve had a good understanding of what death was or a good understanding of what evil was. So by Satan sort of proposing this trade-off between uh, death for knowledge of good and evil... I don't really know what death is, but this evil thing sounds pretty interesting. It sort of starts to build a case for a tempting deal. 
Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. (laughs) Okay. So Adam's standing there and he's just watched his brand new beautiful wife get deceived and he's just gone along with it. Uh, Anyway, what's wrong with you, Adam? Anyway, then verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So this is kind of like the worst game of hide-and-seek in the history of ever, isn't it? Like I liken this to my kids. If we're playing hide-and-seek, this is my kids like curling up in the middle of the lounge room floor sort of half pulling a blanket over themselves and giggling and wiggling around under this blanket. And because they've got their hands over their eyes, they're in complete darkness, they think no one else can see them either. Camille's laughing because she knows how crazy this is. And that's kind of like the situation here. Like, how, what does someone think they can do hide from the God who created this place, created them, created the garden? So God... He's come down in the cool of the day as seems to be like their custom, which would have been amazing. But God's down here walking with man. So I wonder if this is like a pre-incarnate, like I don't really know, but I'm wondering if this is like a pre-incarnate version of the Son, person of the Godhead, come to walk down with man, walking with them, coming down to man's level. And now he's calling out, but the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? So does this sound like an angry, you know, Zeus kind of God in the sky, throwing lightning bolts down like a real malevolent beast of a God, coming down and saying, how dare you disobey me? You know, is it that? Is this what that God sounds like? No, he's come down, he's coming down like he normally does, and he's calling out, he's calling out to his children. He said to them, he's like, where are you? Where are you? And this is Adam replies, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, this is God said back to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Hmm. So Satan's statement of knowing good and evil was partly true. See, Adam and Eve, they, get to know, they now had an understanding of what good and evil was, from the standpoint that it affected them fully, that it now made them guilty sinners. That's how they were experiencing evil. They didn't get to sort of stand off like um, from, God, from a holy God's perspective and objectively see what evil is. No, they knew it because of the torturous ownership that it now had over them, which then leads them to all the sort of the shame, like the, you know, running away, we're naked, the shame. And then the guilt passing. Who, who's responsible for this? Who's responsible for this? And then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent who, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Oh man, how, how did we get to this? Like We got to this point where it's Adam, did you eat of the tree? Nope. 
It was that woman that you gave me, God. It's your fault and it's her fault. You gave me that woman. It's their fault. God goes to Eve. Eve, what's this you've done? The devil made me do it. That's her instant response. The devil made me do it. Finger pointing, blame passing, shame. It's already, sin's already got its roots in here. We can see it affecting its perfect, God's great creation. So when it all comes down to this, there's a whole lot of finger pointing between the guilty parties. But where's the root cause? Where's the root cause? Is Satan a serpent, isn't it? So what's, where do we address him? How, and how do we even get to this point, actually? How do we even get to this point of Satan talking through a possessed snake, deceiving humanity into rebelling um, with him against God? How do, how do we get to this point? So let's jump around a bit. Let's cut, we'll cut the narrative here. We'll cut the story. We'll cut Genesis 3 here. And we'll take like a, um, we'll take like a Quentin Tarantino movie-esque kind of shift and we will go do a bit of rewind, like hit the rewind tape, you know, and go back into history of what the Bible has told us, filled in a bit of backstory, okay? Let's develop this character a bit more. So let's find out who this Satan character is. Let's find out about his origins, So let's go back to the point where sin and rebellion truly began in the heavenly realms. So who was Satan? Let's jump over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, this is a really cool chapter. And just as you're turning now, I'll just fill you in a bit. Um, Like much of biblical prophecy, like the book of Ezekiel is, there's there's all these different layers to, to the narrative, to the stories, to the biblical prophecy that we have. On face value, certain passages can relate to actual people or actual kingdoms or actual events or whatever. But then you sort of, when you go down and you start looking through those elements, a more fuller picture appears of a person or a kingdom or an event that this top surface sort of one sort of only alludes to, is only a shadow of, it's only a type of. So, for an example, if you take King David, okay, you take what David did in his life and how he, he behaved and how he conducted himself in certain ways, not all of his ways, only in some, because he's only a type, he's only a shadow. If you take King David's picture, you look through, you can see a more fuller King David, a, real, a more fuller shepherd king, a real, the fulfilment of David was Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's who we can look through David's story and see. So likewise, in this Ezekiel chapter 28, we can look through and see on two levels. So the first part of this chapter in Ezekiel 28 is about a real dude, um, the prince of Tyre, more than likely the leader of a city um, called Tyre. Now, let me tell you about Tyre. Tyre was a little town built on a really rocky island about a kilometre off the coast uh, into the Mediterranean, just a little bit north of Israel. Yep, north of Israel. Sorry, to the west, or out into the Mediterranean. But it was north of Israel, off the coast there. Now, this first part of the, part of the chapter is referring to this, the actual leader of this city. It was a Phoenician city, had a very strong... Na- the Phoenicians were known for having really strong navies. Um, it was well-guarded. It was a fortress kind of rocky island, very almost impenetrable. This um, passage, this... Um, 
prophecy that Ezekiel writes about in the first part of 28 actually came on, on about its destruction, the destruction of Tyre, actually came about 13 or 14 years before it was sacked under the Babylonians, under Nebuchadnezzar, in about, um, I think it was about 570-something BC. And then it was sacked again by the Greeks under Alexander the Great on his way down to Egypt. He actually destroyed a whole town and used the rubble from the town to build a land bridge out there to crush the town of Tyre. So this place called Tyre, it got smashed twice from this prophecy that came before it. So that's what happened to Tyre. That's what happened to the prince of Tyre. But then the second part of the chapter, we get this lamentation to the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre being the greater power behind the prince of Tyre. And now from the book of Daniel, we know that there is, um, in the spiritual realm, there is often uh, larger spiritual beings behind countries and behind rulers of countries and different things. So let's read this second part of chapter 28 and uh, see if you can work out who it might be alluding to. Who is this king of Tyre? Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. I'm reading from verse 11. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God amidst, sorry, in the midst of of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the people are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So while I take a drink, any ideas um, around who this king of Tyre might be? Satan, that's right, yeah. Let's read another passage in Isaiah. Like there is things in just before we go to Isaiah, there is things in there that just don't speak of a normal man. Like you know, you created perf- like you know, he's he's made in all this grandeur and glory, and he's put placed in Eden, uh, sorry Eden, and then he's fell, fallen. So anyway, let's go to um, Isaiah chapter fourteen. Now, likewise, this is a, a similar passage that, at face value, you can see it as maybe the falling. showing the downfall of a Babylonian king, 
but behind that, we can see like a truer fulfillment of it as, it, as it's seen as an account of Satan sinning and, be thro- and being thrown out of heaven. So let's read from verse 12. How you are, sorry, yeah, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So it's another bunch of these passages about Satan's beginning and Satan's fall. So from these passages, we understand that Satan, or as Isaiah refers to him, the day star, which in Latin is the word Lucifer, he was a created heavenly being. He was the chief guardian among the cherub. And these cherub creatures, or these cherubim creatures, not those, they're not little fat kids with tiny little wings on them that you see in like Valentine's cards and stuff. These are mighty heavenly creatures. Like we've just, when did we finish Revelation? It was like in the middle of, or towards the end of last year sometime. And you know, all those heavenly creatures and they look really weird and strange from what we understand on earth. But these are powerful heavenly beings and all they can do is cover their hands over their, or their wings over their faces and over their feet and they can just scream out, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty holy. That's all these mighty creatures can do. And Satan, when he was created, he was the chief of these creatures. Satan was created for and he was given this unparalleled position of, in, in God's order of his spiritual and his physical universe. He was made incredibly wise and beautiful. He was covered in beautiful sort of... Um, like setting, like every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, like just dripping with like precious stones. And I think of, you know, the amount of favour that was put on him and given him and glory that was given him by God in his creation. Similar to like, you know, Joseph with his coat of many colours that Jacob gave him. You know, he was the favourite, like he was, he was yeah, almost an apple of the eye kind of thing. And God has placed him, God placed him in the holy mountain, walking amidst those fiery stones, which is probably a reference to God's immediate, like white, hot, holy presence. He was blameless. It's very clear that he was the epitome of, of God's creation in the heavenly order. But key word here, though, he was part of the creation. He was still just part of the creation. He was a created being. He's a creature. All right? And like all creatures, great and small, the Lord God made them all. Like that's you, me, us, all creatures. We all, we are all accountable to our creator. We're all accountable to our creator. So despite Satan's position, we read in verse 15 of Ezekiel 28. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Now, and I cannot explain 
how this happens. I've got some ideas, but I wouldn't you know, build a sort of a doctrine on it or theological stance or anything. Um, but how something like this happens in God's immediate holy presence is hard like to, to a creature that God had put at the pinnacle of his realm. Like I can't answer. I sort of feel that there was, in the way that God had created him, there was like an, a, like a, there was no restraint on kind of potential. So like if you imagine us as free will creatures, we have the ability to go outside. There's, there's limits on our free will. We, we can go outside and we can do good. We can go out and help an old lady across the road. We can go outside and be a mongrel and we can go kick a dog. Like we can go and, you know, drink a can of Coke. We can go do what, we can drive a car, we can speed and drive a car. We can drive a car into a tree if we want. We can do all sorts of good or bad things. But as much as I exercise my free will, I can't go outside and fly. There's a limit put on this universe for me to not be able to fly. So that's how, sort of how I see this. I see that God, in God's created realm for his, these heavenly creatures, that there was no sort of limits put on them, or at least not a limit to go past sinning and unrighteousness. So how it happened, I just imagine it as sort of like an unchecked fleeting spark like a thought or like an attainment that sort of flies into this extremely flammable mix that's of um, like supremely bestowed beauty and power that Satan was given and it's aligned with like almost ultimate authority and, and favour. It's just this, just flies into a blaze of unrighteousness. And then it corrupts this once beautiful creature and he is thrown out of heaven. Um, now, Isaiah 14 passage actually gives a little bit more around this with those five I will statements. I emphasise them as I read through, but we'll read them just quickly again. In verses 13 and 14, it says, he starts, it's sort of like a building of momentum in Satan's heart. You can almost see it. Like there is, I will, what do I start with? I will ascend to heaven. And then I will set my throne. And then I will sit on the mount. And then I will ascend to the clouds. And then he ends with, I will make myself like the most high. This is the, the ramp up. That he, this is the way he's like, whoa, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. And there's this pride and there's this unrighteousness that's found in Satan, wanting to be equal and like God. And that was his unrighteousness. He was proud. and his, He had a desire to be like God. He wanted to replace God's will over the earth and the heavenly creatures with his own will over them. Does that make sense? That's my, my take on it anyway, my understanding of it. So in, in Ezekiel's prophetic lamentation, it shows us that this unrighteousness was found in Satan and then it flares up to sin, Satan's thrown out of heaven. Because you remember that little, it's a little tiny bit in, I think it's Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is... This, those other disciples that he sent out in the towns around, the 72, and they came back and they're talking about casting demons out of people. And Jesus makes that comment that he saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Just wonder if Jesus, you know, is just talking about when he has got, you know, they threw Satan out. So this is how we arrive at Satan, cast to earth and possessing the body of a serpent. And then he enters the garden and he approaches Eve. So... 
Let's rejoin, now we've got a little bit of backstory filled in, let's rejoin um, the narrative in Genesis 3. Uh, where were we in Genesis 3? Oh, yeah, that's right. Finger pointing and blame shifting. Adam says, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. And Eve says, the devil made me do it. So God goes to the root cause and God says to the serpent, he says, verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So once again, two levels for this. First, there's the serpent creature that God had made that was possessed by Satan. First, this certain this serpent it immediately lost its wings, its legs, or whatever was keeping it off the ground, and it's hit the sack, and it's slithering away. Imagine the shock at seeing that. Just this glory, like this cunning, like obviously one of God's great creatures all of a sudden just become like what we know as the snake. Second level, though, looking through this, we see a second curse on Satan, like the first curse when he was thrown out of heaven for purposing in his heart to be like God. And then the second one for deceiving humans to try and become like God. So do you see the imagery here? Like there's two parallels. Satan created at like the ultimate, the zenith of the heavenly order. He falls for wanting to be like God. And then he convinces humans who are also created up there he causes them to fall for wanting to be like God. So doubly cursed, we see this image of Satan as a snake writhing around in the dirt for trying to elevate himself above God. I think I've told you this, um, I think I've told you this story in the past about this time on, a, on an underground cable dig uh, work site in Rocky. I came across this, you know, it was almost two metres, like eastern Taipan, and it had been... Um, disturbed by the excavator and here's this thing it's thrashing around like all the guys in the in the excavator they had just taken off as fast as they could and all the guys just standing around holding shovels they just it was like cartoon strip like just gone the shovel just stay there just still like you know all those little little uh little bursts of air yeah dust you know like you know wily coyote cartoons or whatever anyway i'm getting ridiculous anyway everyone had taken off and there's this terrible massive deadly snake just whipping around on the ground and it's biting itself, it's biting the dirt, it's biting the excavator bucket. It was just out of its mind. And if it wasn't, like I, I felt it was almost a pitiful sight if it wasn't so dangerous and so hideous and deadly. So this is the picture that, Satan has, that God has reduced Satan to, eating dirt. From the splendour and the, the absolute zenith of the heavenly order to eating dirt, sliding around, writhing in dirt, bringing only pain and, and, and fear to those that, that cross its path. So now let's, let's get into the crunch of verse 15. Key verse, verse 15. This is the one I was alluding to in, um, in, in prayer and chair time with that song that Tim gave us. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Camille, 
as a woman, she loves to quote this verse as a, uh, her reason for hating snakes. And on, on a surface level, you know, she's probably right. But, as, but obviously, aside from the fact that we don't encourage our kids to go around stomping on snakes, because living in Australia, if you do that, you know, the odds are you'll end up with more than just a bruised heel, okay? Um, but if we look at this, through this verse a little bit more, we see, this, we see a deeper level, and we see God's motive and his master plan at work, okay? Because theologians all through history, they have called this verse, and this is a Latin word warning, they have called it the Proto-Evangelium, which, English please, is the first gospel. That's what it means. It's the first gospel, this little verse. But these words, these words, just look at them. Spoken by God, they contain the first glimpse of redemption to come into this world. When everything's all gone south, God comes here with like this promise that things are going to go north one day. It'd be great. So, yeah, amidst the toxic flow of all that sin that's coming in, God says, no, I'm going to put a stop to this. Right? Satan and all this toxic flow of sin, one day it's going to be stopped, man. It's going to be stopped. And think of it, man, for, all, for like Adam and Eve and for all those, you know, all their descendants, obviously all those Old Testament people to come, all the Old Testament saints to come, think of what hope this gives them, that there will, they won't always have to wrestle with Satan and sin, they will not always have to wrestle. Exactly, babe. It's... And the end will come, the battle will be won, and Satan will be crushed. And this is a hope to look forward to, but how does this happen? Like, who does this? And, and when? When does this happen? How? When? Who? Why? Where? When? What? So as we look through, once again, we'll, I'm talking about these levels a lot, and you can look at you know, verses and you can, you can discern different levels of meaning from them. We look at this verse about the woman's offspring, and it's going to be a man. So what is, who is the fulfillment of man? Who is the ultimate fulfillment of man? Who is the true and best man? Jesus, exactly. So he is going to come and stomp on this Serpent, snake, Satan. Jesus is that ultimate man. So he's going to come and destroy it. And he's going to strip then Satan of his power over death. So when did this happen? Because Jesus has already been on earth. Hey. And he's not here now. He's in heaven now. So when did he do this? When did he actually do this? Stomping. Exactly. He did this on the cross. He did this on like a wooden it's the most, it does not look like a victorious sign when you first see it. A splintery wooden frame that like a criminal has been whipped at and he's hung up, heaving to breathe and he's left to bleed out or suffocate to death. How is that, you know, heel stomping on a snake's head, crushing it into the ground? It doesn't look that victorious, does it? And Satan thought that. Satan thought that in that day, 
He had succeeded in getting Jesus killed. He thought he was on the money. He thought he had won. He had bitten. He'd bitten hard. He'd done what he needed to do. But in doing so, as Jesus was bleeding out, he signed his own death warrant. Because in that blood that Jesus shed was this, is the, the atonement, the making right, the ability to come back to God from all sin ever. So in bruising Jesus' heel, Jesus then crushed Satan's head. And this is a trade, like a trade of battle blows. Battle blows, you know, like one person hits another and the other one hits another with a fatal attack. So Satan is permanently and utterly destroyed, but Jesus is killed only temporarily because into the grave he goes, three days later he rises victorious to life. And in, in doing that he's beaten the most ancient of his adversaries, Satan. So, this, um, this proto-evangelium, right, this first gospel that, we, that was heralded by God back, way back in the garden, which it, and it's, it's blasted through history and it's been sustaining all the saints of old as it's gone until up to the crux point of the cross and the empty grave which that same God who declared this, that same God who declared it, died on that cross and rose from that cross. And in that doing so, he, per- he seals victory permanently in history. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So how do, we, how do we see this going? How, how do we go out in the power of this today? Like what, does, what does this even mean? How do, we, how do we respond to this? Romans 16, in Paul's closing remarks to his Roman church, to the Roman church, I should say, not his, Jesus' church. In verse 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So this is the thing. He's instilled in us the power over the devil of his spirit, the work Jesus did on the cross in killing, crushing the serpent's head. And through Jesus, through, the, well, through God's Holy Spirit living within us, gives us the power um, to go about with victory over, over Satan and over sin in our lives. So go out this morning into the new week, Willow Burn. Your enemy's been crushed. Hallelujah. Let's lead into communion. Let's, I'll just pray and then we'll, um, we'll come up, eh? Lord, thank you for sealing victory for us through your death. Thank you for stomping that old adversary's head and for removing any power that he has over this world and over us, your people. Lord, help us to understand that as we come to remember you this morning. Remember your death, your body nailed up on that cross and the blood that you spilled out for us. Lord, thank you. Make us truly thankful. Amen.